Guns are in the news and nobody's happy about it. First son Hunter Biden has been indicted on gun charges. Probably more significantly, the governor of New Mexico has reacted to gun violence in her state by suspending Second Amendment rights in Albuquerque and surrounding areas. Can she do that? Let's find out in today's discussion on Independent Outlook. Hello, everybody. I'm Graham Walker coming to you today from the Independent Institute in Oakland, California, right across the bay from San Francisco, where we try to bring you an independent take on the issues of the day, keeping an eye on the fate of liberty. As always, I'm joined by my colleague, Dr. Williamson Evers, who's the director of our Center on Educational Excellence. Hi, Bill. Hi, Graham. Great to see you. Also, I'm very pleased to have us joined today by our featured expert and our colleague, uh, Stephen Halbrook. Uh, Steve Halbrook is a senior fellow with the Independent Institute, uh, also practicing attorney, and most notably, an author of many important books on the Second Amendment, including, uh, most recently, uh, this new book, The Right to Bear Arms, very much worth getting. Other books like Gun Control in Nazi-Occupied France, Gun Control in the Third Reich, uh, Founders, The Founders' Second Amendment. And if I'm not mistaken, Steve, you have won gun cases yourself before the Supreme Court and have been cited by the court. Is that right? That's correct, Graham. Uh, good to be with you, long-term colleagues. Thank you for having me. I'm sure we'll have a great discussion today. Much appreciated. <clears throat> so let's go to New Mexico. Um, so apparently last week there was an 11-year-old boy named Froilan Villegas uh, who was killed with and his aunt critically wounded when they were leaving a minor league baseball game. And that was the one of a succession of shootings in New Mexico. <clears throat> and so the governor of New Mexico decided that she had had it. So first, uh, last Thursday, she declared a, a statewide public health emergency because of gun violence. And then on Friday, she said she was suspending the right to carry the open or concealed in Albuquerque and some surrounding areas. So can she do that, Steve Halbrook? Uh, she thought she could do it, but nobody agrees with her in the state of New Mexico. Um, first of all, we had law enforcement officials saying they're not going to enforce it. Then we had the Attorney General, um, Raul Torres, write her a long letter explaining that there's a Second Amendment. And there's the Supreme Court case in Bruin. And, it, and not only is there a Second Amendment, but the New Mexico Constitution itself protects the right to bear arms for defense and security for lawful hunting and other lawful purposes. You, you can't just wipe all of this out. So the Attorney General said, Governor, I'm not going to defend you in court because about five lawsuits... Her own Attorney me. General. Pardon? Her own Attorney General. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's, a, he's a Democrat. Um, that doesn't make any difference. Look, in New Mexico, uh, a lot of Democrats are pro-Second Amendment. Uh, don't kid yourself. It, it, when Bill Richardson was governor, he was a very strong advocate of the right to bear arms. And uh, under his uh, leadership, the um, concealed carry permitting system was revised and, and made better. And so um, basically nobody agreed with the governor. The, the sheriffs said, we're not going to enforce this. And so the, the case ended up very quickly in court. And almost as quickly, we had a, a temporary restraining order issued by the judge who was appointed last year by um, President Biden. And, and it, the judge outlines in his opinion how, look, this is a no-brainer. 
The Second Amendment protects the right to keep and bear arms. The Supreme Court held last year in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin that the right to bear arms includes the right to carry firearms on the person. And, and yet the governor said under, oh, this was under the guise of a public health measure like uh, you use for COVID or something, and we've seen what that leads to. And she's trying to, um, you know, leapfrog on that law, kind of emergency law, uh, public health emergency law, um, to decree a gun ban, and you just can't do that. As she said, apparently at one point, she said, gun violence is an epidemic in America, and I'm done letting it be an epidemic anywhere in my state. Enough is enough. So the epi epidemiology is now the new right. template for this kind of thing. It's an attempt to use the vocabulary from public health, which the anti-gun movement has been doing for some time now, and to say that gun violence is a, a, a public health um, problem, it's an epidemic. But I can tell you, the, the person who shot that boy uh, recently and, and the other people committing acts of violence with firearms in Albuquerque and, and in that main county, that has the population uh, amount, the, the numbers that the order makes it supposedly valid in, they're not people with concealed carry permits. They're not law-abiding citizens. And no matter what you do, um, no matter what you decree, it has no effect whatever on criminals. And the Attorney General said that in her Dear John letter to the governor, uh, and, and the, the court said it also. Um, you, the Constitution protects this right. The, the court held that for a TRO, you uh, have to show you're likely to prevail in the case uh, on the merits. And, and the court readily TRO, said... TRO, TRO, temporary, temporary restraining, restraining order. order. Okay. Uh, Steve, were you surprised that the, they, this was able to get resolved so quickly? I noticed that uh, Jonathan Turley was worried that since it was only going to be for 30 days that the courts might not be able to get to it that fast. Well, that goes into irreparable harm, which is also required for a temporary restraining order. And the violation of a constitutional right, even for a day or a short period, is irreparable harm. And that's what the court found. You also balance the equities and you look at the, the public interest, and the court said it's always in the public interest to enforce the Constitution. <laughs> right. And, and, and so this stuff about gun violence and, uh, you know, the skies falling, none of that has anything to do with reality. Uh, it doesn't have anything to do with the Constitution, which protects this, this right, and it has, certainly has nothing to do with trying to repress violent acts by criminals in Albuquerque. So... You mentioned the COVID time period and emergencies that governors declared and how they went overboard in terms of personal liberties. But aren't, isn't this whole part of a larger problem even, not just in the gun area, but and not just in the health area, but there are so many emergencies that presidents have declared and the governors have declared in the United States where instead of the regular legal uh, procedures, they hope to get around them or skirt them in one way or another. That, that's right, Bill. And the, 
it depends on how much the courts are willing to stand up and enforce the Constitution. You know, Harry Truman tried to seize the steel mills back in the exactly. Korean War, and the Supreme Court very quickly uh, enjoined that, issued an injunction against that. Um, we, we've seen Second Amendment rights were basically ignored for, for many decades, and finally the Supreme Court stepped in. And once the Supreme Court said, we really mean it, in the third major case, first we had Heller, then we had McDonald, then we had Bruin, uh, by that point, it's like, we really mean it. And, and courts are very much so enforcing uh, the Second Amendment more than ever before. A, a letter was written recently by uh, members of Congress to um, Attorney General Merrick Garland saying, well, you're supposed to be enforcing civil rights. Uh, what are you doing about New Mexico? I mean, here you have uh, a governor trying to flaunt uh, the Constitution, and and you're taking what action, Mr. Attorney General? Okay, so maybe we should move to Hunter Biden. Well, before we do, and apparently... Um, the reaction was so swift, but she hasn't admitted wrongdoing. I mean, I guess she's not going to thwart the the court rulings, um, but I'm not sure that uh, she's acknowledged the facts that even her fellow Democrats in New Mexico have presented to her so clearly. Have I missed something, or is she still kind of defiant in her position, at least? Look, she's defiant. Uh, she was represented in court, not by the attorney general, but the, the attorney representing her in court basically just talked about, oh, well, policy dictates that we take action. Uh, that attorney somewhat disagreed with the Supreme Court. Um, yeah. The, the attorney went on and on about we have to, to do something. And, and of course, what pay, they... Since she's not defended by the attorney general, does she have to pay for that out of the governor's accounts? Uh um, I, I don't know the yeah, details. No. This has all happened so fast. Yeah, yeah. And, um, I know. I, I don't I, think they filed a brief. I don't think the uh, okay. the defendant, the governor's attorney, filed a brief even. But it was too the, fast. Uh, the attorney went into court and and made that argument. It's basically policy, not constitutional law. I don't uh, think Graham and see to reinforce what Steve's saying. Um, the commentator from Heritage. Foundation Swearington, I think her name is, uh, said that she's worried that this governor will just keep spending money trying to defend this. <laughs> and so I think we, though, well, even though it seems like it's over, it's not well, necessarily. Well, I checked the headlines this morning on the Babylon Bee, and I love their headline said that <laughs> the governor of New Mexico is suspending, suspending the First Amendment to stop criticism of her suspending the Second Amendment. <laughs> That's great. Very good. Very clever. <laughs> it's probably true. <laughs> okay, so I think maybe our liberties are a little more secure after this episode, a little paradoxically speaking. At least I hope that's the case. hope that's the case. So let's turn the page. Um, what's this deal with Hunter Biden? He had some kind of a plea deal, and I thought he was going get, to get away with whatever he was getting away with on his guns, but apparently not. Do you know the details, either of you? Well, look, it's none too soon. Uh, had the uh, attorney, uh, the prosecutor, waited a, less than a month, uh, the statute of limitations would have run on this case. There's a five-year statute of limitations for Gun Control Act violations, and um, it, it expires, I think, October 12th. Ooh. Uh, so 
we were right up to the deadline. Yeah. Now, Hunter Biden has been indicted on three counts. Two of them are somewhat redundant, but they are separate. So uh, count one is a violation of a provision of the Gun Control Act, making it unlawful to make false statements to uh, a gun dealer uh, in a manner uh, that is likely to mislead the dealer. Um, and, and, of course, what he did was to fill out the Form 4473 that you fill out when you buy a gun from a dealer, and you say, I'm not a convicted felon, I, I, I'm not an unlawful user of controlled substances, uh, and I'm not addicted to controlled substances. Um, you make all these uh, representations, and you you sign it under penalty of law. So uh, he was indicted, Hunter was indicted for that count, and then there's a separate false statement count that he was indicted for um, that it's more of a, you have to knowingly make the false statements. I mean, that kind of goes along with it being a false statement, doesn't it? But um, uh, knowingly is an element of the offense. Um, and that's ba and it's also based on the same misrepresentations that he made on the Form 4473 saying, uh, that I'm not an illegal user of um, controlled substances. So that that first count is a 10-year offense. He could get 10 years incarceration. The second one is a five-year offense, the second false statement uh, count. And then count three is the fact that he possessed a firearm between the dates that he bought it, and it must it must have gone in the garbage can about two or three weeks later because that's oh. when they say, that was the period of possession, uh, first starting the date that it was acquired and then ending two or three weeks later. And so for that, if you are indeed an unlawful user of, of controlled substances and you possess a firearm, there's a federal jurisdictional hook there that ha the firearm had to be uh, transported in, across state lines. So it was a Colt Cobra, uh, which would have been made in, in Hartford, Connecticut, and so by being shipped to Delaware, uh, you get federal jurisdiction there. Ah, so I was wondering how that worked. Of, uh, the indictment. Mm -hmm. So does... Some of, us, some of us are against this expansive interpretation of the Interstate Commerce Clause since the New Deal. Some of us. Indeed. But, you know, you can't help wondering, this is somewhat tongue-in-cheek, Steve, but... You, one can't help wondering, well, does the, does the fact that Hunter Biden could get these guns so easily and so forth, does this show that we need even tougher gun control laws? Well, no. In fact, he's <laughs> being brought to justice. And in fact, he would have been brought to justice a long time ago had he been an ordinary person. Uh, people find out. I mean, uh, look, um, we, we have constitutional rights and you have to take obviously take that into account when you pass laws. And in this case, um, he, he violated the law. Um, there's questions about whether the law itself is constitutional, not only uh, on the basis of it's his possession of a firearm. He's not, he's not involved in interstate commerce. And so what Bill said a minute ago about the expansive nature mm -hmm. of the supposed uh, commerce clause uh, that's a, an issue. And then, of course, the Second Amendment is an issue. Under the Bruin decision from last year, the Supreme Court said that um, the, the right to bear arms is presumptively 
available to a person, and it's the burden of a government uh, if they restrict that right to show that uh, there's a historical basis from the time of the founding or the period thereafter that exhibited the public understanding of the right, so that if you can't find historical antecedents of the kind of law that you have today, then the law that you have today might not pass constitutional muster. And in so fact, if, there if were no I, laws at the I time recall. of the founding prohibiting gun possession by a person who either used drugs or mm-hmm. um, intoxicating beverages. You, you can certainly make a case that um, there, there's historical analogs for uh, if you're intoxicated and, and you have a gun and you, you, you're carrying it around in public, that that kind of law would be held valid, I'm certain. And the same with uh, if you were currently using drugs and you have a gun and you're and thereby endangering other people. But uh, there are, have been some court decisions uh, about Second Amendment rights and the, that right is violated by this. The, the Supreme Court's going to decide a new case, the Rahimi case, it's going to hear argument in November the seventh, and it's going to—it's another big Second Amendment case about mm-hmm. these prohibited categories, and we'll see what the court does. A lot of courts are going to be waiting and seeing what the Supreme Court does in that case as to these other issues. So, Steve, I wonder if the courts might distinguish, or you might distinguish, between a person who drinks alcohol, whether it's in uh, seventeen ninety. Uh, or today, uh, and but is carrying a gun when he's not or she's not intoxicated, and a person who uses marijuana or uses cocaine sometimes, but is carrying a gun when they're not high, when they're not impaired. Uh, but, you know, they used it a, a week ago, a month ago, whatever, and does the signing, and I'm not a habitual user of controlled substances, or I'm not, could debate all day what the word addicted means, perhaps the, the, the form is violating their Second Amendment rights by not separating out the occasional user from the chronically impaired user. Yeah, and you've got two issues, though. Possessing the firearm, uh, indicting the person for mere possession, while being a a user but not not currently using, versus the other laws, the two false statement laws that are at issue here, can you sustain a conviction? Even if the Second Amendment threw out the, the law about possession... Uh, you've still made false statements to the government. And there again, that's that's going to be another issue. And the whole thing's going to be very interesting. Here you've got Joe Biden wanting to incarcerate he, yeah, law-abiding he, citizens. He, now, wants, for, for he wants all these things that his son is going to be arguing against in court. He wants them to be tougher than they are. He wants to incarcerate law-abiding people who are not addicted to anything, aye, aye, aye. who are not felons, who... Ha, have not made any false statements. He wants all of us to be incarcerated. Right. Uh, and But his son, um, I mean, what a model. He said his son didn't do anything wrong, though. So if you believe that, then i got a, a bridge to sell you. <laughs> you know, the most important thing you said, Steve, a few minutes ago, I think, was your point that 
where the Constitution uh, affirms that we have rights, um, we presumptively can be free to exercise those rights. So unless you know there's some major reason that the government can show why we shouldn't because we're a danger or somehow using, already used them irresponsibly maybe, but the presumption of uh, rights is very important. I'm glad that my right to freedom of speech or free exercise of religion is, is my presumptive right, and you can't just legislate it away. And it turns out that the Second Amendment confers a right or affirms a right, I should say, um, which is in the same category. It's a constitutional right, and it's presumptively ours as citizens. That's right. And it, it was not until last year the Supreme Court finally put its uh, step down that we had one court after another saying, okay, uh, it's the text says you have a right to keep and bear arms, um, but we're going to do this balancing test. It's called means-end scrutiny, intermediate scrutiny, um, and the government interest always prevails over the the constitutional right. And uh -huh. what Justice Thomas said in the Bruin opinion, uh, that's one step too many. <laughs> uh, you look at the text of the Constitution, and then you look for any historical analogs, you know, laws that were similar to the one that you're dealing with that existed in 1791 when the Second Amendment was um, uh, ratified. Um, and you don't go to that additional step where you, you balance the right away. We don't do that anymore. We don't. We never did it in First Amendment cases, and right. it, it was a doctrine invented after Heller was decided to try to whittle away Second Amendment rights because the courts were revolting at the decision in Heller. Um, but here you you've got some courts resisting Bruin, but you've got a lot of compliance by many courts. I think with the Bruin decision and the New Mexico. TRO that we just talked about is an excellent example of that, and and the decisions that are questioning some of these laws, um, like the, that Hunter Biden himself is uh, indicted for, uh, or in the case before the Supreme Court now, the Rahimi case, um, possession of a firearm while under a domestic protective order. Um, is there a historical analog to that from the founding period? And the answer is no. We have a Fifth Circuit decision that invalidated that that law um, prohibiting possession of a firearm by a person uh, under a protective order. So we'll see where the Supreme Court goes on that. I won't make predictions, but um, that's what we're all looking for. What's the next step? I mean, deciding the New York case was kind of a easy because there, there you had law-abiding citizens. And, and with the criminal side of this, uh, you've got some people who are not model citizens like Mr. Rahimi. So mm -hmm. we'll see where that goes. Yeah, okay. Now, Steve, you were, I think you should give yourself maybe some credit, you and other scholars, for helping push this idea of historical context around the time of the adoption of the Second Amendment. So tell us a tiny bit at least about that. I mean, you've been doing research in this area for many decades. Well, this is one of those real conspiracies. We had a conference. I was a law student still. 1977, Don Cates had put it together, a great friend. Uh, I remember we all well. We were Because I remember that, you from back in the 60s, I think, even before the 70s. But go ahead. That, that from, yeah, from 69, that, uh, if you attended that Murray Rothbard 
thing in New York in 1969. Well, I did. Anyway, um, we resolved we wanted to start writing law review articles and books on Second Amendment rights, and we, some of us, fallen through and did that, and and um, the the courts became convinced by the scholarship that became the standard model, and and um, <laughs> the the whole idea that the Second Amendment doesn't protect individual rights was put to rest. The the theory was some kind of collective militia right that nobody has and. And um, so o- over time, that simply got unmasked, even though that was the the theory that the um, the real smart people at the cocktail parties, <laughs> the AB American Bar Association people, uh-huh. they all enunciated that. They thought the American public was inaccurately thought they had a right individually to keep and bear arms. And so we've made a lot of progress and, and so much progress. I think on the Second Amendment field that it's hard to keep track of now. <laughs> it's great. And listen, here at the Independent Institute, we are especially grateful for the work that you, uh, Steve Halbrick, have done in this area. And I'd encourage our friends who want to know more, go to our website, independent.org, and you can find a lot of materials on the subject, as well as you can purchase Stephen Halbrick's books uh, on the topic through our website. They're also available on Amazon, uh, and uh, we're really appreciative of all that you have done. Any final comments from either of you before we sign off? Thank you, Bill. What do you think? (laughs) I think think we're living in a better age. Thank you for the hard work for liberty, both of you gentlemen. (laughs) And we'll sign off. Thank you, Graham. Thank you so much, Chief Halbrick, uh, Williamson, Evers, and thanks for joining us here on Independent Outlook at the Independent Institute. Take care, everybody.